0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Built On Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of y Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Paul Spiegelman. Paul is the chief culture officer for Stericycle, a globally traded public company with over 25,000 employees. Prior to that, he was the founder and CEO of Barrel Health, a company that won nine awards as a best place to work. Paul's also a New York Times best-selling author of three books about culture and employee engagement and speaks often on the topic to convince other businesses about the power of values-driven leadership and the ROI of culture. Paul also acts as CEO of the Small Giants Community, a membership organization of small business leaders who believe that as a business, you don't have to be big to have a big impact. Paul says the relationship between culture and building great business is a real passion for him. In this episode, he discusses his journey from leaving a career at a law firm to collaborate with his two brothers to create a revolutionary new company. He reflects on the values his parents instilled in him and his brothers and how it renders them kind, caring people with great core values and an amazing potential for leadership. Paul genuinely believes culture is found in both the grassroots origins and the outreach strategies of a business, and that companies today flourish by selling who they are, not what they do. This episode is full of endearing lessons about family, teamwork, and genuine leadership that everybody will appreciate. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Paul Spiegelman. Well, ladies and gentlemen, joining me on another episode of the Built on Purpose podcast is the one and only Paul Spiegelman. Paul, how are you today?
1: Doing great, Brian. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. You know, I want to start uh, you actually practiced law for a couple of years before starting Barrel Health. Uh, and Barrel Health, for those of you who don't know, uh, is a call center that was focused in the healthcare space. And if I were to take a bit of a cynical view, at least to the early part of your career practicing law and then moving into the call center space, you know, I, I, again, being the cynic, I could probably easily arrive at the conclusion that you, of all people, would never have been the guy to become such a culture champion. I'm curious, how did you come to embody and really be an ambassador for the positive effects of culture and what it has done for the businesses you've been a part of, and more importantly, the people you've been able to impact?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And by being cynical, I'm not sure if you're being cynical about the legal profession or the call center <laughs> profession or both. Um, I'll but, let you be you the know, judge of that. It, it probably applies to both because I don't, you know, I, I think either industry, safe to say, is probably not known for really high cultural standards or, you know, internal engagement and, and those kinds of things. Uh, and so, uh the idea of culture and its relationship to building a great business certainly became a passion of mine over the years. But I would say that it's something that that grew over time, and wasn't something necessarily by initial design. Uh, when I uh, left the law practice to start my business with my two brothers, uh, we did it because we knew. We have, uh, we wanted to get into business at some point to do something together. We didn't know what we would do or when we would do it, and um, and one day just decided to to jump into um, a business that really wasn't a call center business. It was a business to help people with medical conditions get help at home in the case of an emergency. So you may be familiar with those uh, commercials that we still see that says, "I fall and I can't get up," and sure. uh, uh, and that wasn't us. Um, because we never could afford to sell to the public, but the idea was the same, that we uh, came up with the idea that we could help people who had medical emergencies uh, in their home and uh, send help out, and we started in an 8 by 10 room uh, where we had a cot that we would roll in and one of us would sleep overnight because we were 24-7 day one, and uh, we responded to people who needed our help and, and would go out and put a receiving unit in their home that would dial up to our response center um, and, and went out to start to sell those services to local hospitals so they were offered the service to patients leaving the hospital and uh, so we didn't know what a call center was we were kind of a monitoring center for these kinds of systems and uh, and just went out and started to sell and uh, I would say that the whole sort of cultural evolution began at the point when we might have had 10 or 12 People in our business, so you know, we're already a couple years into it now. And uh, I remember that time where employees would comment to us that, uh, with uh, comments such as, "You know, this is a really fun place to work," and we said, "Well, what makes it fun?" They said, "Well, uh, it seems that we always do things together, Uh, we socialize together, and and you and your brothers uh, seem to genuinely care about us as people." And then we would start to ask questions about where they used to work. And then the, the the comments would really start to flow about how poorly people were treated. So we only knew by what our own people were telling us, which is that what we were doing seemed to be unique. So then we said, well, we started to think about, okay, well, why are we acting this way? We don't know any different. We had never been in business before. And I can only conclude that it's because our parents just raised their boys to be good people, to have good core values. Uh, my dad always said, "Always be nice, never burn a bridge, and treat people with respect." Um, come to find out, not everybody uh, acts that way in business, so you know, no surprise to you, I'm sure. But um, what we were smart enough to realize was that we had something special and unique, and uh, we then built upon that to said, "You know, we're going to do more and more of this, and maybe that um, this is ultimately going to become our secret sauce and what we're about." And that's really, I think, what drove the cultural evolution of our company and ultimately turned me into kind of an evangelist for this style of leadership, which, as I came to learn, um, was very unique, uh, at, certainly at the time, for the way business was done. Traditionally, you see much more of the command and control style leadership, which worked for many years. And I think we moved into a, um, a new world and we're a number of years into it, but still very early Around this idea that uh, um, leadership is much more collaborative, team-focused, um, culture-focused, where we're where we're caring about people in the totality of their lives, and that is what ultimately drives our business and our business decisions, not just the financials. So, like I said, we're we're very early on, and um, it's nice to see the organizations sprout up around the country um, that are focused on on this idea. But that was the really the the original genesis uh, for for me and. Um, and others that feel the same way
0: did uh do you think your brothers did they really share and experience the same sort of almost uh, light bulb or aha even though you know all all three of you of course were raised well by your folks and they gave you some great life lessons that not everybody. Uh, had the good fortune of having role modeled for them as they were growing up. Do you think your brothers sort of felt the same aha light bulb moment as your teammates were coming up to you and just expressing this, you guys, you know, this is a fun place to work because kind of simply put you, you deeply care about us and it shows it's genuine. It's authentic. Do you think your brothers uh, felt the same thing?
1: Yeah, I think they did. I think that the extent to which uh, we implemented that or executed on that would obviously be be a little bit different depending on which brother you were talking about. But I think everybody appreciated and bought in. I think my older brother, who was kind of the technical genius behind the business, was maybe um, a little bit more uh, on the serious side. And, and uh, um, you know, one thing we learned about the culture is that we couldn't delegate it. We had to participate in it. We had to live it. We had to set the example. And in my case, that meant getting out of my comfort zone quite often because um, I'm very much of an introvert. Um, being that person that's more out there, uh, walking the floor, um, just cutting it up with people and, uh, having fun is, is not, is not my typical thing. Um, so I'd, I'm the, the guy that might be sitting in the office talking on the phone or, you know, cowering under my desk in the fetal position, trying to figure out what to do next. <laughs> so, um, so I, What i do believe is leaders have to get out of their comfort zone and and so it took that for me to be the one that ultimately um led uh these efforts uh across the company not only within the business but turn them into being what we sold to our customers and uh i like to say that uh, culture is is great not only to build the internal value in the organization but we should be selling who we are, not what we do, and turning that into a thought leadership platform was something that became really important in our business, and I, and I was the one that really led those efforts. But I'd certainly say that my brothers you know, supported this idea, and, and ultimately they saw the benefits just like I did.
0: You know, you brought up the the notion of selling based on who you are, not necessarily on what it is you do. And that actually reminds me of a story that you told that I read recently about a pretty big contract that you uh, and your brothers and, and the organization was uh, aiming to win and, uh, well... I don't want to give the story away. Hopefully, uh, my uh, my little framing there helps you recall uh, that particular story of a pretty big healthcare system that you were looking to win a contract from. Can
1: you can you share that story? Sure. You know that goes back a few years, but uh, uh, we we had built our business for uh, I think this might have been 2005 um, when this event occurred, but uh, we. Uh, We had transitioned our original medical alert business into the call center business because one of our clients asked us to answer calls from people in their community calling, looking for doctors. They called it a physician referral service. And even though we didn't know what that was, come to find out every hospital in the country had that. And we felt that it's something that we could do on an outsourced basis. And that ultimately became our core business, uh, the business that we had until we ultimately uh, exited the business. Uh, our original medical alert business we sold in in 1994 but right around that same time we had been bidding on a piece of business with the largest hospital company in the, in the country still the same company hca back then they were called columbia hca and, and uh were even uh bigger they were looking for a single company that could manage these types of services for all 350 of their hospitals so wonderful opportunity and we had been bidding and going through rfp processes and then there'd be delays and two-year process uh, and ultimately uh, i got word that we weren't going to uh, to get this contract Um, so what i did was i decided to take a final step and i and i sent a personal handwritten note card to the executive that was uh, in charge of leading this project and i kind of pled with her to say look um, i know that you're about to make this really important decision and it occurred to me that you guys have never actually visited us and um, this decision is so important that i would really ask you if you if you would come out and visit us and then finally make your decision and to my surprise uh, she agreed and brought out one of the other decision makers and and it gave us the opportunity to showcase who we were and let's be honest there's nothing sexy about a call center uh the business is is uh, commoditized in many ways and uh quite often companies like ours compete on cost and yet we had created an environment that not only was very special for the people that worked in it but to the extent we were able to bring people from the outside to see it they could actually feel what it was like to walk in those doors and so that visit, those few hours, made the difference and three weeks later we signed a multi-million dollar contract to build a national call center for this company and we could choose anywhere in the country and uh, in the early days when we tried to raise money and no one would give it to us, now we had a 10 million dollar budget to build this 400 seat call center uh, anywhere in the U.S. we wanted to. And. and uh, uh, it also taught me about the power of relationships because the then CEO of the company, HCA, was Rick Scott, who today is governor of Florida. And I'd never met Rick, but they wanted us to meet him. They flew us out to Nashville a couple weeks after that visit to California to, uh, to meet him and try to make a final recommendation and uh, spent five minutes with him. But we just clicked right away. He happened to also have a legal background and though he had accomplished obviously so much more than I had done we connected he was a very down-to-earth guy and he as I heard later walked out of the meeting and said you know I want these guys to get the job and and so um, that had nothing to do with what we did or the price of what we charged uh, it was just uh, relationships and I always say that no matter what business we're in we're in the relationship business. Uh, that's what it taught me, but it was really that first experience and evidence that uh, if you can get people to understand who you are as an organization, you know your purpose, your mission, your values, what you're about, what you stand for, that that is in uh, going to be a key differentiator in the way. Uh, you sell your services.
0: So I'm curious. I want to stand this just for a, a, another minute or two. When the when the couple of decision makers came out, you know they're visiting a, a customer contact center, a call center, which you know if you look at that industry in general if we can even call it an industry is typically and I'm going to I'm going to generalize here but typically low morale high attrition uh, these are not the most glamorous places to be yet you wrote a handwritten card to one of the decision makers they invited another came and visited you and clearly there was something about that experience that the decision makers had that led to the ultimate decision. And so they must have felt something very different about being at Barrel Health, different from perhaps the other company or companies that were also vying for the contract. You know, other than this clear expression of genuine care that you and your brother's uh, had for the team, and I'm sure the company had grown, con- you know, considerably by the time this experience happened. From the founding back in uh, what was it, '85? I think that, uh, mm-hmm. that you guys started the business. You know, uh, what do you think it was in particular, thinking back, um, that they saw or felt or experienced that led them
1: to go with you guys? I think, Brian, that it's the same thing that uh, that. People saw when we ultimately built the center for them in Dallas and and for years after that, uh, our clients and prospective clients saw when walking in the door. When you walk in the door of any business, you can immediately sense a vibe of what's going on. And uh, the title of the first book I wrote is Why Is Everyone Smiling? And the reason that I use that title is because I would constantly uh, have people tell me once they walked through got the tour of our organization, met people. At the end of it, they would say, gosh, why is everyone smiling? Everybody seems so happy. And I said, well, I don't know, ask them. And uh, that's what they would do when they would find out what it was that made people feel comfortable. And it's something you really can't fake. And you can tell by looking at people's faces how they feel being a part of the organization. And I think what we have done is uh, allow people to, to see that in process so you know we can say that we care about our people in the totality of their lives but if you sit down and we put them in front of our employees and they have them fire questions at them and they and they uh they tell these stories about how they're treated uh, it's really impactful and what i say is that you know there's really three key things that every employee of any company at any level wants it's purpose it's appreciation and it's learning and so how how do we put those on say on stage so to speak so uh i love marketing so i was all about making sure that people could see what we were doing and whether it was the the photos that we would have all over um showing people doing fun things to showing in their cubicles our methods of reward and recognition, to showing them our training programs that, uh, and how we invest in developing our people over time. They're the kinds of things that you're not going to see in a typical call center. And so they would just see that environment. And, and they might even walk in when it's you know, ugly sweater day or it's <laughs> something going on where we're celebrating an event and realizing that uh, we exist to enhance the lives of the people that work in our business. And you can't sell that through a brochure, you can't sell that in a proposal, but you can come out and you can walk through and you can sit down next to people and you can talk to them and you can ask them what is special about this company and they'll tell you. And now we're, if you think about it, we're gonna be representing these 350 hospitals and people from their communities calling in where our job is to make a tremendous first impression as if they're calling into that hospital. So the sense of confidence that that potential client gets is very high saying, wow, they're not just here to pick up the phone fast and give somebody the name of a doctor. These guys are gonna go the extra mile and treat our patients and our community with care. And and I think that it doesn't take a long time to see that if you genuinely display that when people visit in your uh, with your business
0: why, why do you think it's so hard for some leaders and, and I'll let me even be more specific I think leaders that have been around the block once or twice have some decent tenure under their belt um, why, why, why do you think it's so hard for certain leaders to express how much they do care because I think at the end of the day they they really do, they just don't seem to be able to express it. Uh, and I'm curious. So so maybe that's just my experience, I guess. Has that been your experience? And if so, what's your thought on why it's so hard to express care?
1: Yeah, it's a great, uh, great question, Brian. I think first there, uh, it seems to me that in my experience, there's three different types of people. There, there's the first type who's kind of wired this way and who it can, comes pretty naturally to and i put myself in that category so uh it, it's not something i had to really fight to do or to uh, express um then you have the group that gets it and this is the one i think you're describing they get it you know i care but i don't know how to do this stuff Tell, teach me how to do it and then there's a third that doesn't care at all right and that's been um, very interesting for me, and, uh, or at least that's what I thought. I thought there was this third group. Um, when I sold my company, I sold it to a large public company, and I, and I have, for the last four years, been acting as chief culture officer for this big public company. So I have gotten to know many of these corporate executives that grew up in the big company world and were much more comfortable in and experienced with the command and control style of leadership that years ago was very popular and let's be honest worked and uh and in many cases i thought those people were jerks and that they didn't care at all and until i got to know them and what i learned when i got to know them and built the relationships is indeed they do care and they have hearts too it's just that they don't know any difference They don't have a different frame of reference and what they did all those years worked and it got them that next promotion and they kept growing and being successful until now, when we're challenging them to say, did you realize that there's another way? And instead of just focusing on hitting the numbers, would you be open to the idea that if you focused a bit on your team, you could get this warm and fuzzy feeling of what it's like to impact people's lives? So I've come to, over the years, realize, the most recent years, that there probably are two, two camps, like you expressed. Um, the one that, that this comes naturally to and others that, that care but don't know how to express it. And I think we spend a lot of time, I do, um, trying to teach those folks how to do this. And to me, it's, it's quite basic and, and simply a matter of style. And, and if you think about how we go about our day, how we have a conversation, how we run a meeting, how we stand in front of the group and talk, simply how we communicate with certain adjustments, we can change the perception and we also have to give leaders the permission to be vulnerable themselves and to also show those emotions and and to know that it's okay to show you care about people it's okay to ask about their weekend it's okay to join them on bowling night Uh, it's okay to really show that you care about them outside of just work and not to worry that that's going to pollute the work environment or that um, they're going to be less productive i mean clearly if you show people that you care about them and their own vision of success and fulfillment Uh, They're going to fall on a sword for you and work even harder. But certainly that comes easier to some people than others.
0: You know, it's interesting that your your answer, which is a great one, brings up for me this notion of work-life balance and that, you know, some of these leaders grew up in a time and a place where work-life balance was a big emphasis, right? I, I, I have to be a persona that fits my job title when I go to work. And then when I go home, I get to be, you know, husband or father or, or whatever uh, my role is at home. And there was a very clear line between my work self and the rest of my life self and I'm going to guess you've got a, a particular opinion on this notion of work-life balance, and so I'd I'd love to hear it. Where, where do you fall, uh, it, it, you know, on this notion of of work-life balance?
1: I don't really think there's any such thing. Uh, I just call it life, and uh, um, obviously the um, our, our smartphones keep us connected. We're we're connected 24 seven to What's going on in the world? What's going on with each other? And uh, and I love that. And I think yes, we need to have appropriate uh, balance so that we pay attention uh, both to work and to our family, uh, and give everybody the appropriate attention. But to me, it's just a it's just life, and that's again why uh, we use that message while building the culture in the company to say that we're going to incorporate a home and work together and whether it be the quarterly newsletter that we would send to the homes of our employees with you know coloring books in the end for their kids to fill out or the family day where we would bring in carnival rides and and uh, bring them into the parking lot and invite the families to come in and participate or the annual color you know uh contest for the the t-shirt that design would come from kids participating Um we're we're there to to not only be their work life, but in many cases their social life too. I mean, we're in a call center with a lot of single moms, people making uh twenty-nine, thirty thousand dollars a year living paycheck to paycheck. The least we can do is to not only show them that we care about them, involve them, involve their families. Um That some of their best friends and relationships are with people that they have at work. So, let's have movie night. Let's get people together. Um, And so, uh, we encourage that. We encourage people to socialize with with each other. Uh, And the fact is, uh, I want to bring my kids to the Halloween uh, trick-or-treat. I I want them to be involved. Um, I want them to be connected. So, Uh, I think the the balance should be, are we doing justice to uh, both audiences? And are we combining them? Because, you know, the person that's 100% focused on work and, and, you know, I'm guilty of this and coming home and not quite listening to my kids the way I'm supposed to and paying attention and my wife going, you know, snap out of it, right? That means I don't have the correct balance. But the fact that I would, you know, talk about what goes on at work or bring my kids there or have them involved, I, I think that's... That's a wonderful thing, and uh, um, we're, if, if we're truly fulfilled at work, it's just part of our life, just like our home and family time is part of our life, and why not integrate them? So if anything, it's work-life integration.
0: I love it. And I had a feeling that, uh, was likely the direction you were going to go, which is a a perfect lead into a, a question that's been in the back of my mind in specific around the acquisition of barrel health by Stericycle back in, I think it was 2012. You know, I would imagine that, you know, you had a lot of thoughts racing through your mind. I mean, you'd been, uh, with Barrel, part of Barrel, founding Barrel, running Barrel for you know, coming up on what would have been 30 years in 2015 and to be acquired by a big publicly traded organization like Stericycle, I would imagine probably uh, there were some conflicting thoughts. Would you be able to maintain this type of – small giant mentality and I do want to get into small giants a little bit later in the conversation uh it, it, you know being acquired by a big publicly traded company I, I I'd love to dive a little bit into You know, what was going through your mind as the entrepreneur, as one of the founders, as the the leader of the business and being acquired, which would clearly have some phenomenal financial benefits for you and hopefully everybody involved, but also could greatly change the future of the culture of what you had invested in for such a long time. Let us into your mindset a little bit of what that process was like back in, in you know, I would imagine those conversations started before 2012. So uh, let us in a little bit.
1: Yeah, it kind of makes, you know, you go, what what were you thinking? <laughs> um, uh, well, it kind of goes back a couple of years before that, because uh, I mentioned early on when we started, we tried to raise money and we couldn't get any. And then when you start having some success, everybody's throwing money at you. Um, And we always turned it down, but we, uh, up until uh, we sold, never had any outside capital in the business. So I'm very proud of of that. And I think that contributed to how we were able to build the kind of culture we built. But there came a time in in 2009 around when I, uh, a couple of things were happening. One is that the business had really grown, but we saw even a greater opportunity to accelerate our growth in healthcare. I had also diversified my own time, um, I had uh, uh, written a couple books, I was doing some speaking, I had started a couple other organizations, so I saw um, some some opportunity for me to do some other things. And and so what we did is we decided we were gonna raise some outside capital. Um, so I did the typical thing of hiring an investment banker and putting a book together, and, and uh, uh, ended up getting a lot of attention at a time, if you remember 2009, wasn't a, a great time for, deal-making, but we knew we had a great story, and and, uh, indeed we got 20 bids on the company, and I ultimately uh, signed a letter of intent to sell the company to a private equity firm based out of Chicago. Uh, But the kind of questions you were just asking really hit me hard during the due diligence phase, and I started to question whether the culture of the organization could be sustained in a private equity-type environment. Uh, And I also Realized that that if there was any legacy I was going to leave for uh, myself, my family, and the company was the their survival and the sustaining of the kind of culture we we had built, or else I'd, I'd be kind of a hypocrite. So, um, luckily, at that time we didn't need the money to grow, but but it was it was it was very opportunistic uh, for us to go down that road. And at the eleventh hour, with about two weeks to go, I walked away from the deal, feeling that that while I can't say uh, Private equity is, is wrong, there's no right or wrong. It's just really not compatible with the kind of business that we had built. So I went back to, uh, to work and told everybody and, and the management team mostly was saying, okay, now what do we do? Um, now how are we gonna grow like you said we were gonna grow? And so I said, okay, let's let's build a new plan. We're gonna do this on our own. I started to rack up some debt. We maxed out a $5 million line of credit. I put money back into the company for the first time ever. And we actually lowered our profitability by fifty percent from what had been at its height, because I wasn't answering to anybody, and I knew that that kind of investment was going to be needed for us to achieve um, a now much more uh, robust goal. Uh, but then I get approached by this company, Stericycle, in two thousand eleven, in November, and I'd uh, never heard of this company. Turns out they're a a, a uh, waste disposal company in healthcare. So, why would a waste disposal company be calling us as a call center? So, I, I, I learned pretty early that um, big, these big companies, and by the way, I've never worked for a big company, let alone a public company, uh, they diversify and they expand and they get into new areas. And a couple years prior to that, they had gotten into the patient communication business by purchasing some physician answering service companies and work that we don't do specifically, but they came to learn about us as the largest company in the hospital call center outsourcing space and uh, that's why they were interested and they wanted to know if we would be willing to to join the family my initial reaction was you know thanks but no thanks i said look i'll be honest here's here's what's happened a couple years ago here's what we've done since then um, i said from a valuation standpoint it wouldn't even make sense because of how we've reinvested um, all this money and and uh, but they kept at it, and they said, "Well, you know, let's talk some more, let's look at your financials and and uh that initial offer uh was was quite attractive and uh but didn't stop there. it took us a long time, it took us almost a year to do it um and uh and of course, I had not just the financial but the other considerations that you were talking about because uh, look, let's be honest, uh, you know what better chance are we going to have as part of a public company to have our culture survive? We're going to get swallowed up and I'm going to be gone and, you know, what's going to happen to it? So the uh, so I certainly had those thoughts and the turning point came for me when I first met the uh, the CEO of Stericycle and uh, He had just been nominated to become the new CEO. His name is Charlie Aludo. He had been there for years, but uh, just got the nod around the time they were negotiating with us. And when I first met him, he pulled me aside one day and he said, Paul, I, I, uh, I've i heard a lot about, about your company and your culture and what you've built, and it sounds like you guys have a wonderful reputation. He says, I don't know if we're going to get a, a deal done with you guys, but um, I want to be honest with you. Our company has had tremendous financial success. We've been kind of a Wall Street darling for years. We're very customer focused, but we have never really looked at the the employee, the team member as a key stakeholder in our business. And he said, as the new CEO, I want that to be my stamp on the business. I would love to learn from you. Would you be open to me coming down to Texas and just kicking the tires for a couple of days, see if I can learn what you've done? I said, of course, Charlie, I would be honored for you to do that. Two weeks later, he comes down and uh, we spend this time together. And I said, this guy gets it, right? This guy really gets it. And, and so uh, once that started and I built other relationships, uh, in the business uh, and went through those ensuing months I started to feel like wow number one I think our company would and our culture would survive within this larger organization we were also sort of a platform play so they were going to kind of let us um, direct and run the show two and more importantly maybe what we have done as a small business could rub off on this big company and, and we could have an even bigger impact than the work we were able to do uh, with Barrel Health. And so, ultimately, we decided to uh, uh, sell the company to Stericycle and uh, close that in the end of 2012. But within a couple of months, as many entrepreneurs uh, would would uh, identify with you know we sell our companies and to a larger company and with all good intentions to maybe continuing running it for a while we realize it's not our show and we don't have control any longer and it's not as fun and uh, uh, so I didn't want to do that for too long and I was sitting with Charlie one night and and he said Paul what do you really want to do I said Charlie I want to be chief culture officer of Stericycle I want to see if what works for small works for big It seems to me that there's this great company with tremendous success. So this isn't a turnaround. Is it possible to change the culture of a big public company? Uh, And ultimately, I want to answer this question that you and I, Brian, were talking about earlier, is that can leaders change the way they lead? And I'd like the opportunity to work with these leaders. And and so to give me this platform that, honestly, I don't have any experience in working in a large company uh, would be a tremendous honor for me. And I, and I said, I don't want you to pay me to do that because it's going to be my way of giving back and it's going to make it harder for you to fire me. So, <laughs> uh, uh, so he said, all right, let's start on Monday. And uh, so that's what I've really been up to for the last four years is on that journey, learning about what it's, to, what it's like to be working as part of a public company and, and working with many, many people across the organization to try to implement and then scale uh, these concepts in a much larger organization.
0: So I want to put my cynic hat back on just for a moment. And when Charlie asked you if you'd be willing to open uh, open up your place of business. If you'd be willing to open up Barrel Health for him to come visit, kick the tires, get a sense of what you're up to, even if the deal wasn't going to get done so that he could make that part of his stamp on Stericycle. Did you feel at any time that this was just part of them uh, romancing you and uh, part of the sales process and hoping that you'd warm up to uh, being acquired by Stericycle?
1: I knew you were going to say that. Um, It it didn't occur to me uh, at the time at all, and you might say, boy, that was pretty naive because that's exactly what he was doing, Uh, but I will tell you that within uh, a week of closing, he called me back, and he said, I want to come down again, and I'm going to bring my head of HR, and we're going to get started.
0: So you just you you well I would imagine uh, whether you want to call it naivete or not, there must have been something in your gut that led you to believe it was authentic, and obviously it was it has proved out that way. You know to to follow up with a call after the deal was done to come back uh, if they had no intentions of moving in that direction. That's probably not a move that uh, Charlie and the the head of people or HR were going to make. So that's uh, that's pretty cool. That's really cool. So uh, I'm curious. I don't want to get off this just yet. In The four years that you've been on this new journey for you and serving as the chief culture officer and your first experience in a large publicly traded organization working with all these different corporate execs who grew up maybe in a different time in a different place and doing things a different way. Are they thirsting for what you've brought to them and they just didn't know how to express it? Have you found that they've been far more receptive than they've been defensive to you know, the, the Kool-Aid you're trying to serve?
1: Well, I wouldn't go as far as to say that they were thirsting. I would say that uh, the initial reaction, other than Charlie and uh, you know, a few other executives, but by and large, the initial reaction was, why do we need to change? We are so successful as a company. I mean, they had hit their numbers seventy-five quarters in a row, and uh, like I said, the stock price had just continued to go up, up, up. So they were doing a lot of things right, and and many of those more historical type leaders were saying, you know, what's this culture stuff, right? Why why are we uh, devoting resources to that? So I had to uh, deal with that early on. Um, so I saw some of that defensiveness, but I knew that 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 uh, ultimately we were gonna prove ourselves by uh, doing and then measuring. And I, and I also realized that simply doing wasn't gonna be going to be enough. Uh, you can't sit in front of a, uh, executives at a public company, let alone the board, without showing them an ROI for the, the work, because let's be honest, it's still about business results. And you know, my theory was that, look, if we focus more internally on our teams and our people, that's going to drive customer loyalty. That's going to drive our business results. But I had no track record of doing that in a large company. So there was some cynicism when I arrived. And oh, you're just trying to barrelize the company and uh, all of that. So, But with that, we just put our heads down and worked hard. And I, I had a, a small uh, team. And, and uh, um, we realized that we had to get buying at the top. Um, we then knew that the people that were thirsting for was everybody on the front line doing the work you know at the time there there were 10,000 employees now there's 25,000 employees you know we're in 22 countries and and Stericycle does 40 to 50 acquisitions a year wow so imagine sort of the cultural challenge of integrating all those new people and all those new companies into you know a common culture and so uh but if i could simplify this it would be to say that what we did was no different than i did in at barrel we just simply created uh methods of scaling the same things and i talked about that the first thing around purpose well i noticed that this was a big company that had four operating divisions that all operated independently no sets mission vision values everybody kind of did their own thing and i asked charlie uh, within a couple months, if I could bring together about 40 global leaders to answer a very simple question. Do we want to be a holding company with these subsidiaries that do their own thing, which many public companies do quite successfully? Or do we want to be one company that stands for one thing? And if so, we need to articulate that. And I did. I brought that group together and everybody's answered it by saying door number two. We want to be one company that stands for one thing. And we spent the next couple of days hashing out a whole new vision for the business. A, a purpose, a set of values, a future position, a typical vision statement. And then we spent you know 18 months, two years, rolling that out in the organization. Not so much the posters on the wall or the t-shirts we made, but teaching our 2000 plus middle managers how to live the values on a daily basis, how to make decisions that way, how to, to realize that culture and spending time with your team isn't being added to your job. It is your job and implementing programs from reward and recognition programs, training and development programs over the course of the years, developing a team member, hardship fund, all sorts of things that are simply um, nothing we invented, um, things that we had done on a much smaller basis. But when you have hundreds of locations just in the U.S., let alone internationally, how do you create consistency across the organization. And that's still something we struggle with today and are challenged with is, I'd love to say that every team member at any part of the company is treated and feels the same way. We know that's not true. And so a lot of time is spent uh, with those supervisors and managers teaching them these practices and ultimately institutionalizing what we have done. And that's... The message that I always deliver to companies to say, well, how do I sustain the culture as I grow? You know, for us entrepreneurs, I always laugh when people say, you know, I've got four people, and I, by next year we might have ten. How are we going to keep the culture? I <laughs> said, so, well, you, you know, you should see, uh, try a company with twenty-five thousand employees or a hundred thousand. You know, it's all the same. It's putting systems in place. You know, culture is a process, just like every other process we have, and if we could respect that process like we respect our process for pricing or engineering or sales, then we would have a recipe that, that the next group, the next department, the next person could live by. And that's what we need to spend more time doing and realizing that it deserves a seat at the table as an important process, just like everything else we do. And that's what we've tried to do with Stericycle and we can't do that alone. For example, we have 500 culture ambassadors just in the U S alone who are many times frontline team members who have raised their hand and have full-time jobs and say, you know, I love this stuff. I'd like to be the local champion for my group or my location around culture and engagement and be the the voice for the company. Great, you know, so we help work with those people. So it takes many people being involved, uh, but certainly a commitment from the top down to keep these initiatives going.
0: You know, your your comment around, you know, treating culture like a process and working at it and respecting it um, is a great segue uh, to talk about small giants, frankly. And in particular, there is a three-year learning journey or what's referred to as the small giants journey uh, that I believe is probably – A great framework for this process. But before we jump into that, there's probably a few folks listening who may not be familiar with Small Giants. Uh, A book written by Bo Burlingham featured 14 different organizations who instead of following the received wisdom of in order to be great, you have to be really, really big and just continue to grow and grow and grow. And oftentimes just for growth's sake, these 14 organizations pursued a path of just focusing on being great and not uh, succumbing to the pressure of growing big in order to stay or continue to live out their greatness. And that particular book had one hell of an impact on you, so much so that you reached out to Bo uh, in the midst of your book writing and asked if he'd write a foreword, which then led to the two of you uh, developing what I suspect is a great friendship and led to you becoming the CEO of the Small Giants community, which there was none And you really took this and ran with it. Maybe you can share a little bit uh, about how the small giants community came to be, if I didn't uh, steal too much of the thunder there.
1: Oh, you did a good job. Uh, But the fact is, when I read small giants, and for listeners that are familiar with uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins, uh, I always refer to small giants as like the good to great for small companies. Now, small could be, you know, 200 million, but... But relatively speaking, it talked about these 14 privately held companies and what was so special about them. Uh, And it really was this idea that they chose to be great instead of big. We all want to grow. And and I want to put aside that misconception sometimes we all want to grow, but we want to grow with purpose. And it's about values driven leadership. And uh, I resonated so much by the book that, yes, I I befriended Bo and he wrote a forward for my book in two years of, you know, getting together and dinners was a very actually selfish reason. I said, Bo, the kind of people I want to develop relationships with are entrepreneurs who happen to feel this way about business. And not every leader feels that way, and that's okay. So I've been part of CEO peer groups and things like that before, but when I find people that whose values are really driving the decisions in their business and and the reason for being that's who i want to hang out with i said let's start a community of these kind of leaders and that's really why we started the the small giants community to begin with um, to identify to uh connect and then develop values driven business leaders and and as we know in in selling Services of any kind, and starting a business, um, it's nice sometimes when you can just buy a list. You can buy a list of businesses that do pretty much anything, and hope to sell to a subset of that list. Challenge with uh, the small giants is that uh, we can't buy a list of them anywhere. There's no list that says someone has the sensibilities of being a small giant. So, so we we basically build relationships over time with people, um, people who have read the book, or simply resonate with the message to say. If you want to not only learn from people that feel the same way you do, but help teach others about this method of doing business, then the Small Giants community is something you might be interested in.
0: So the idea behind the Small Giants journey and specifically it being a three-year learning experience composed of six modules Three years is—I mean—that's no small time frame for somebody to commit to. I'd love to hear a little bit about what went into not only the module creation but the the the, the time frame. Is this? I mean, uh, I, I have some suspicions. So I, I sometimes have a tendency of answering my own questions. It's amazing I could have a conversation with myself for hours on end. So let me uh, let me turn the question over to you. The three-year time frame. Talk to us about it,
1: yeah, I love how you kind of poke holes in all my good arguments, but uh the uh, uh, but that's a good one and that's one that we knew uh, would be a challenge, particularly for an entrepreneur uh, who says you know I've, I, can I do it in a weekend right can I, can I do that? <laughs> um, so uh, and I'm in that category too, but uh what we have found and goes back to our identification earlier of the people who care and know how to express and those that care but don't know how to express, we find that that second audience is really large. Um, and we find that, that people identify with this message and say to us, how do you do it? I, I need the specific practical tools for how to run my company and, and live my business life this way on a day-to-day basis. Once we did that, uh, we could start to build, let's call it curriculum, uh, around these modules Uh, And the reason for the three years is because we don't believe that you can honestly institutionalize, as we described before, these practices in your business in a short time frame. And the only way that we're going to get value for what we're building here and these programs is to be able to say to ourselves in five years and 10 years that the work that we did created sustainable practices in business long after the leader left just like i've worked to do in my own company and i have been working to do it stericycle is we're only as good as really what we leave behind and you honestly can't make these changes overnight especially if you're not used to doing them and it's not that they're difficult but in order to earn the trust of your people that you really mean it that it's not flavor of the month that you're in it for the long run we want to That's the first reason, that we need you to be serious about it. The second reason is that we do a lot to measure the impact of the work that uh, we do in culture with business metrics, whether they're productivity metrics or financial metrics, and we are tracking those that participate in the journey by setting those baselines and tracking those metrics over time so that we can provide that ROI so that we can provide validation, that we can then evangelize more with the cynics that don't believe this has an impact on the business, to say this is not just the right thing to do, this is good for business. So we found it good to split up these modules, these six modules uh, from leadership, community, relationships, culture, profit, purpose, over the course of three years uh and by the way this is not stuff that's being taught by academics it's all taught by practitioners because we feel that we learn best from each other and uh each other's mistakes each other's successes and challenges and so we've identified uh for each module uh practitioners that either teach this stuff already uh or practice it in such a way that it could be delivered Uh, in an impactful way to those participants. So um, that's the reason behind uh, the commitment. And at that point, people will earn the right to be a designated or certified small giant company. And hopefully that'll be a real badge of honor and a uh, marketing differentiator for them as well.
0: Yeah, totally. You know, it'll be really interesting, much like I think what the B Corp uh, movement has done, Conscious Capitalism, Uh, And a variety of these other movements and organizations that are really harnessing business as a powerful force for good and for change, both in the lives of their customers and clients, as well as the people, uh, their employees who are under their care every day, is it, uh, it could be a very powerful recruiting a uh, flag, if you will, planting a flag and, and a signal to the best and the brightest young minds, whether they're coming out of high school or college or graduate school and saying, hey, this is who we are and this is what we stand for. And if you think the way we think, you're going to enjoy being a part of this organization because, yeah, we are a business and we want to make money and we want to grow, not for growth sake, but to continue to serve and create greater impact. But we're going to do so in a way that... Uh, is more aligned to not so much the command and control, but the you know trust and inspect sort of uh, empowerment based uh, philosophy, and and again using business as a force for good, not just to make money.
1: Well, I love the uh, conscious capitalism and other organizations that share these philosophies. The more the merrier. I, I don't think this is a fad. I think this is you know we're in the middle of an evolution. We still have years to go. We're probably still in the minority of the way. Business is done, so uh, I can be working on this for a long time. But uh, and I don't think it's in really response to any particular event. Uh, I think it is something that's evolved. And and when you talk about the younger generation, millennials, for example, I think sometimes they get a bad rap for being job hoppers and, and uh, being fickle. And, and I think what they're being fickle about are really important and good things. Because they generally, and I know we're, we're generalizing here, they, they want something more to life. They want to make a difference. They want purpose. They want to make the world a better place. And if they don't feel that impact beyond just the paycheck, they're going to go somewhere else. And good for them. I good agree. Good for them. I and the more we build businesses that can show that that our companies stand for something more and not just stand for something, but it can articulate in a way that people can connect to, we're going to be able to attract uh, wonderful talent, just like you said.
0: Yep. I totally agree. You know, the last topic that, uh, and you've been so gracious with your time, I appreciate it, Paul. I want to, uh, you made this comment earlier about uh, these three pillars around culture and around uh, barrel health in particular, and it was around purpose, it was around appreciation, and it was around learning and i just want to focus on learning just for a moment and and something that i think is a, a, perhaps a, a tad personal about you there was a time in your life where you placed a really high degree of importance on being you know the leader to respond to messages and emails pretty damn quick you know you you were a big fan of your smartphone and every time the red light came on uh, you wanted to to be able to respond and do so, and and build a reputation of being just an incredibly responsive, you know, on the spot type of a leader. And you know, I think that over time, in my words, not necessarily yours, became as I did my research a little bit of an addiction, and you were constantly looking for messages and emails and how quickly you can get back to people. And that uh, began to manifest itself in ways that maybe you weren't fully present at any point in your life and almost living from message to message. And again, this is my interpretation of some of the research. And you're not that guy today. You're meditating. You're doing some yoga. You're, you've got a real big emphasis on being present and mindful, I'd love, uh, hopefully a I'm right, or at least close to the bullseye. And, and what I'd love to hear is, was there a particular moment that just was the straw that broke the camel's back where you knew you had to make some changes in your life? What, like what led to this evolution for you?
1: <laughs> uh, no, you, you've got that right. And, uh, I certainly was that person that prided himself on being the fastest responder in my company and to anybody I did business with. And I love that little red light on my blackberry. Right. It took me years and years to finally give up my blackberry. I was one of the last people who said, you know, you know, you're going to take it out of my cold dead hands. and then <laughs> Finally switched over to the iPhone and still don't love the fact that it doesn't have a red light. But, um, uh, but yeah, I think, uh, I think you, you hit it right on the head. The idea that the impact of that would, that I wasn't paying a hundred percent attention to anything and, uh, and still able to get a lot done. But, uh, my transition, I can't think of a particular event other than, uh, a couple of guys that I, uh, work with in the small giants community who had been very into meditation. And I was one of those people that poo pooed, uh, meditation or anything like that. And. Uh, never had tried it, and I finally uh, got one of the apps on, on the phone and, and sat down and did it, and I was amazed. I mean, just within days, what it did to make me uh, feel different. It, it immediately made me appreciate things in life better. It made me uh, more present in the conversations I was having with my kids and my wife and at, at work. Uh, and so uh, it, we're always learning. Right, and and I and I'm sorry that I didn't discover that uh, a long time ago, and and prioritize, and you know, so that's where my sense of balance or work life balance was off, was way off. Is to say um, that uh, what's most important is not how quickly you respond, uh, but responding with intention and understanding because of what I listened to and what I heard, and so. Um, I I think, of course, uh, from a customer service standpoint, responsiveness and being available and all those things are still very important to me, and and that's not gonna change, but the ability to to slow down, um, to have that space to try to be aware of what's going on, to be present in conversations, uh, to be present in my life is definitely something I'm uh, still new at, but learning and appreciating more every day. And I, and I think the point is that, that um, I always say, as, as an entrepreneur, uh, I, I never even considered myself an entrepreneur. I never knew I was going to be a business person. I had no experience doing it. I I have benefited greatly from mentors uh, throughout my life. But we just learn as we go. And uh, I just happened to come back from a, a conference. I don't know if uh, you're familiar with this organization, Brian, That uh, I came upon that's kind of like a small giants for big companies called the center for higher ambition leadership.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I am. Yeah. yeah very so, much so. Um,
1: I, I just went to their annual summit in Boston and, uh, amazing and wonderful to see this kind of thought that, uh, you and I are talking about, uh, coming from the mouths of, uh, you know, fortune 100 CEOs and from academics from Harvard. And, uh, and so really, uh, warmed my heart to see that, uh, I think we're onto something here. And, you know, I think entrepreneurs tend to do it a little bit more from the seat of their pants and, and the academics are building models, you know, that are sometimes hard for me to understand that tell us why we're, we, we do the things that we do. Um, but the, the fact is we're, we're constantly learning and that's something I I hope, uh, uh, doesn't change with my approaches either.
0: Well, I'm sure that it won't. I'm sure that it won't. Well, Paul, this has really just been a pleasure. Um, Such a a wonderful conversation. Appreciate uh, your sense of vulnerability and humility and sharing the stories that you did. You've had just some amazing successes and I'm sure like most, right? I mean, you've had some uh, colossal failures along the way um, as we all have. And probably most of us, I know I've had a lot more failures than successes, but, you know, an author, a speaker, a CEO, an entrepreneur, a chief culture officer, uh, the, the small giants community guy, I mean, you're just, you're involved, a father, a husband, a brother, you're just doing so much and, and seem to be balancing all of it, at least from my end, quite well. It's uh, to fit us in. I, I just, I'm really appreciative. And uh, I really hope that our paths uh, do cross uh, more than just this one time excuse me, more than just this one time. Uh, for folks out there that uh, would like to learn more, I know there's a variety of places, right? I mean, they could go to stericycle.com. They can go to smallgiants.org. Of course, your website, paulspiegelman.com. Is there the Barrel Health Institute? Boy, we didn't even touch on the institute. Uh, we'll have to save that maybe for another time, but I know there's some great learnings coming out of the Barrel Health Institute around patient care and and really the, uh, the care partners themselves and what we should be doing to really take care of those that are taking care of the patients to make sure that uh, our healthcare system continues to improve. It just... Any other places on the web uh, that we'd want to direct folks or you'd want to direct folks to? No, I think you named them all. All right. Well, Paul, thank you so much, man. Really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me and thanks for all your good work. Well, thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed
0: hearing our interview with Paul. If you're interested in a transcribed version of this show or want to listen to more episodes of the Built on Purpose podcast, please visit yscouts.com forward slash podcast. If you'd like to recommend someone as a guest for the show, please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening.